Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Yes, indeed. Welcome in. It is Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 144. Brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Rich Kimball here, joined by Carrie Haskell, as, as we are each week on Downtown, the podcast, and our daily radio show, Downtown, which airs throughout the state of Maine, the Zone Radio Stations, WZON, WKIT, HD3, streaming audio at downtownwithrichkimball.com. A couple of fine conversations coming up for you this week from the world of music. A little bit later on, multi-hyphenate Van Dyke Parks, songwriter, musician, arranger, producer, singer, former record executive. He's done it all in his career, including get us set up with our first guest on the podcast this week. Another very talented musician, singer, songwriter, Grammy award-winning producer, Joe Henry, who, uh, well, among other things, has just relocated to the state of Maine. We had a wonderful conversation talking with Joe about that, that move to Maine, his music, and more. Here's Joe Henry on Downtown, the podcast. Joe, thank you so much for being with us. Well, Rich, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, I have to ask the status. Are you now officially a Mainer? I am indeed. Um, I'm in a rental house at present. My wife and I, we are building a house uh, in, in, in Harpswell, but we are uh, camped in, in, in Bath while the work progresses, and uh, we, we've let go of everything else. So, so, so here we are. Well, that's a wonderful spot down there. What, what drew you to Maine? Well, you know, we've been in Los Angeles for over 30 years, you know, uh, thinking we would only be there for two or three, like a lot of people, <laughs> and then uh, things just take their own course. Um, but we, we really missed uh, a true four seasons. My wife is a native of Michigan, and I came of age there. And, uh, you know, Los Angeles has a lot to offer, but it's, uh, it's not poets weather there. Uh, you know, when it's, when it's 90 degrees on Halloween and I've experienced that many times, you know, the poets weep, uh, and we really miss, uh, you know, true winter and, uh, and, and a more peaceful day-to-day life closer to natural beauty. Maybe I'm giving away my age, but I, I, I think I thought that, uh, decades ago as well, but my work had kept me pretty, pretty welded to Los Angeles. Well, we're awfully glad to have you here in the state of Maine. I, I told you in our, our email conversation that uh, our friend uh, Van Dyke Park said, man, you got to talk to my friend uh, Joe Henry. We love Van Dyke, who was on with us yesterday. How did you two get together? Well, we've known each other for a really, really long time. Um, he actually did some orchestration for one of my earliest records, though I didn't really get to know him at that point. I, I was barely in the room with him. Uh, but once I was in Los Angeles, I was invited one afternoon to be a part of a, um, a small group of musicians sitting on the stage at the Will, Gear, the Will Gear Theater out in Topanga talking about songs and singing a few of them. And I was with T-Bone Burnett and Sam Phillips and Jackson Brown. And Van Dyke was there to sort of uh, moderate the afternoon. And we fell into such deep conversation and we just kind of never let up you know he's one of my dear dear friends and one of my favorite people to have a martini with that's for sure (laughs) i saw a quote of yours that uh, really caught me you said uh, that whenever true emotional understanding was available to me songs were its delivery system true enough i even before i understood that that that's what was happening to me i i can look back and know that songs were the way that I kept things grounded um, and even more significantly kept my mind um, up in the ether. You know, I think all of us try to live in that kind of balance where we do feel grounded, but we don't feel trapped by, by uh, day-to-day mundane existence. And songs were always there keeping me rooted and inviting me out beyond uh, what I could readily imagine. 
Hey, you've also talked about the influence of, uh, of great writers, uh, one, of course, being uh, Garcia Marquez. How, how did they influence you, and, and how do you take what they did and translate it into your own art? Well, Rich, I sometimes think it's too uh, on the nose only to talk about songwriting in terms of other songwriters. Though, you know, I've studied, you know, uh, all the great songwriters as deeply as I've been able to. But I sometimes feel that that doesn't allow new perspective as you're really starting to find your footing. And I think I was about 21 or 22 when I read 100 Years of Solitude. And it said more to me in that moment about what I thought good writing, even good songwriting might be, than anything else I could name. You know, it was, it, it was hallucinatory. It was deeply, you know erotic it was it was free it was untethered by the you know notions of of what we think are possible um in our waking lives and i knew as i was reading it very consciously that that's what i wanted my songs to do if i was able to to keep writing them as i wanted them to be untethered as i heard his um writing voice to be and at the same time, I was deeply invested and remain so in short story writers, you know, from Alice Monroe to Eudora Welty, Flannery O'Connor, Ray Carver. Um, you know, it's all storytelling. And sometimes when we're just keeping our noses deep into other songwriters, you know, it's sort of like being chin deep in the middle of a, of a great lake. You, you, you can't really sense where you are exactly. But... Reaching into uh, work by artists in other mediums, you know, writers like I mentioned, or filmmakers, photographers, uh, you know, it, it all just sort of opens up the possibilities of, of how we tell stories to each other. And to do things so specifically can sometimes limit our, our emotional responsivity to them. But when we learn how to, to get a little bit untethered, as I said before, um, Things expand and things become more easily adaptable for, for people to come and go as, as, as listeners. We're talking with Joe Henry on Downtown. Did I read that uh, the first 45 you ever bought was Glenn Campbell's Galveston? That's absolutely true. Well, I, you know, I, I, I love that story because we're we're about the same vintage, and I think the first the first album that I scraped together a dollar ninety nine for or whatever it was back in the day was the Wichita Lyman album. Well, and and still incredibly evocative and mu moving music. You know, I I don't really have any embarrassing um, records in my collection. I, I've sometimes been asked, "Oh, what's your you know what's your guilty you know." pleasure you know what did you really love that you were embarrassed about i said uh not a damn thing you know i i bought galveston when i was i don't know seven years old and then very quickly thereafter wichita lineman um uh, dusty springfield son of a preacher mm -hmm. and the first lp i ever bought with my own money um was johnny cash live at san quentin that's a pretty good start right there. Jimmy Webb is a great friend of our show. Uh, he's been on a number of times. And I, I don't know, uh, there are, there are great music out there, but you'd be hard-pressed to find a better line than, I need you more than want you, and I want you for all time. Oh, Rich, that's, that's for the ages, you know. Um, you know, I, I can throw my mind back and, and always remember, you know, even as a naive, you know, seven-year-old, you know, shuddering at, 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 at the truth that I n knew was being spoken. You know, that's incredibly deep record-making from, you know, the peerless songwriting and, you know, terrifically great production that was both earthy and, and country in its orientation. But by no means was that all that was going on. You know, it was kind of operatic in scope and uh, just uh, opened my mind, uh, you know, when you're, when you're quite young, you're, you're vulnerable to, to being influenced because you don't know that's what's happening to you. You, you. you don't have any guardrails up. You know, I don't think I had one thought that, that, that I could decide that something, you know, was good or not good. I just drank it all up and, 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful that, that that was my point of entry. I was a, I was a child in, in, in the South and was hearing a lot of uh, country music and, and Southern soul music. And, you know, I know that that, that really did set my foundation. You mentioned T-Bone Burnett. He was such a great mentor to you and opened up new doors for you. What, what's the key to being a good producer? Well, um, not everybody works the way that I work or the way that I, I've witnessed T-Bone working. You know, what I learned from him, and it, and it sort of just affirmed something I instinctively already believed, just that, you know, you don't really tell people what to play. You know, you know what it means to be a good producer is to be a really devoted listener and letting everybody in the room who's contributing know that they're being heard. And um, I had a friend ask me, he said, you know, singers sing for you in a different way than they sing for other producers. He said, you know, he listed a number of singers, Bonnie Rennett. I can't remember who all he named in that moment. He said, you know, what's your secret? And I just said, I always sit in the room where the singer can see me. And they always know that I'm listening. I'm not. I haven't stepped out of the room to take a call. I'm not doing email. I'm. I'm completely, um, you know, at attention to what they're offering. And and when people know that they're being heard and respected, you know, they'll they'll open a vein for you. You know, they'll give you everything. You can't stop them from doing it. You produce. Don't give up on me for Solomon Burke. We had uh, music journalist Peter Groundlick on a few weeks ago talking about his new book, and, and he said Solomon Burke was the greatest singer he ever saw in person. What was that experience like? Well, you know, I felt like, um, you know, I felt like I was, a, you know, an amateur lion tamer climbing in a cage with a <laughs> lion. You know, he was, he was so, you know, his, his artistry was in, enormous. His history was enormous. And keep in mind, I had not produced very many records other than my own. At that moment, I was a, you know, I was an outlier. I, I was not the most um, employable person who wanted that job. I can assure you, but, you know, we we got on really well. And you know, he, I think he knew that I was trying to help him do something he hadn't done before. I wasn't trying to put a new set of clothes on him. I was not trying to dress him up to be something other than he was. But I also didn't want him to be trapped by his history. We were not trying to recreate, you know, any um, of his early records. I was trying to find a way to just really focus a light on where he was in that moment. And it's a very folksy record, and I think it confused him a little bit in the beginning. But I think he came to know that, that you know, I, I wasn't just trying to to have an idea um, with no regard to, to who he really was, at, at, you know, in, in his true heart. I just wanted to clear away all clutter so that everybody could hear, you know, not only how great he had been, but how great he still was. We were uh, talking about you with Loudon Wainwright III not too long ago because I told him I, I love the music that you guys did together on Strange Weirdos, Daughter, uh, Gray in L.A., and then what is one of my all-time favorite songs, uh, both Loudon's version and your version, You Can't Fail Me Now. Well, I love Loudon. I mean, he is family to, to me and my family. And, uh, you know, he was a hero of mine since I was about 15. So it was no small thing for me to meet him, you know, uh, and, and, and begin working with him at a point um, because my admiration is so great. And I think he is, you know, savagely underrated. So, you know, people who understand, you know, who he is really know that, that he's completely singular. But I, I, I think he is a, a, a truly, you know, American original. And he's also grown to be one of the most uh, emotionally uh, effective singers of his generation. I truly believe it. How did you manage to get Ornette Coleman to play on Richard Pryor Addresses a Tearful Nation? Well, I wrote him a very nice letter. Um, I didn't really think that that would do it. You know, I was, <laughs> you know, fully prepared, um, you know, to hear back that he was not interested. And at first I did hear that, you know, someone from his camp, um, responded to me very kindly and just told me that, you know, Ornette's been asked by everybody 
in the world um, to to play on their music and and he felt like to say yes to some people and no to others um, was like judging the work and he didn't want to do that so I was told you know he wishes you well um, he's going to go back doing what he does and you should carry on doing what you're doing which is kind of what have I you know what I expected and then a couple of days later I get a call from the same woman and she said I'm really shocked to be calling you back but. Ornette spent the weekend listening to your last record, which I had sent along with my letter. Um, and he understands exactly why you want to work with him. And he, he wants me to tell you that he'd be delighted. And, um, you know, I really couldn't believe it. Uh, you know, even though I had had, you know, a little bit of a vision about it as I was writing the song, I just thought, well, if I'm going to speak as Richard, I need somebody of equal um, significance to sort of be a musical representation for him on this track somewhere. And Ornette was the first person that came to mind. And I I had a way to reliably get a letter to him. So I thought, you know, he will say no, but I'm going to ask anyway, because I've always had really, really good fortune in my working life, um, you know, by writing a nice letter. We're talking with Joe Henry on Downtown. Can you share the story about uh, the time... Harry Belafonte gave you a bit of a hard time about steering clear of politics in your music. Well, we were traveling together. I was working with him on uh, some music for the documentary he was making of his life. And we were sitting up very late in the hotel bar in Berlin one night, just a group of us who were traveling together. And I was having what I thought was a very private conversation with his daughter, Gina, at the other end of the table while Harry was holding forth at the other end of this very long table. And somehow in the midst of his conversation, he overheard me say to her that I had never allowed um, a, a point of view of, of my personal politics to enter into the songs that I was writing. And he stopped all conversation and really raked me out. He said, you know, I, I'm not a writer. I wish I was, but I'm not. I'm not a songwriter, but you are. And I don't think you're allowed to opt out. It's, it's, the stakes are too high, and we're too deep into the game of, of our lives here um, for you to, to decide that you just don't want to have a point of view. You're not willing to, to go on record. And he said, and you know why? I think that you think it doesn't look cool on you. You know, I think you want to be aloof, and, and I'm going to suggest you need to get down here in the dirt with the rest of us. <laughs> And I was terribly embarrassed, but more to the point, I knew in that moment that he was absolutely right, that I didn't think it looked good on me to be, um, to, to let politics enter into the work that I was trying to do. And I went back to my room, it was two or three in the morning, whatever it was. And I, I you know, I really did some soul searching about, about why I would adopt such a point of view when I've been very moved by other artists who, who, who are very vocal about their, their political uh, affiliations and uh, standing up on behalf of, of truth and justice, because I believe that in my, in my life. But I, I, I had never really considered why I was protecting my work from, from that part of my person. Uh, and it changed me. I, I did begin to, to operate very differently after that. You teamed up with Billy Bragg for a wonderful project of the recording, a shine a light field recordings from the Great American Railroad. How did you come up with that idea? And what was that experience like of traveling the country and singing those songs? Oh, it was wonderful. I mean, Bill and I had been friends for a really long time. And of course, you know, this was his idea. I think it, it would have absolutely, an idea like that would have had to come from a foreigner because he had an aerial view of who we were, um, as who we are as a country. And he said when he called me on a Sunday afternoon from England and pitched the idea that he said, you know, most Americans that I know talk about the railroad as if it's nostalgia, as if it's the past. And you don't understand how much your country still relies on railroads. You know, you put more freight on the rails than any industrialized nation in the world, and yet you think that it's, it lives in, in antiquity. And 
So he has this idea of wanting to reclaim as present tense um, language, um, you know, the tradition of, of, of railroad in an American songbook. So, um, it, you know, it was a complete gap. You know, he, he came to Los Angeles and we, we, we ran through songs at my house for a couple of days that included Chicago and took the longest um, route that's still in existence in the continental United States, starting in Chicago south to San Antonio and then turning west uh, for Los Angeles. And we stopped, you know, at any time the train stopped for more than literally four minutes, um, we jumped out on the platform with our recording engineer, Ryan Freeland, and you know, knocked out one or two takes of whatever song we had been just rehearsing in the in the sleeper car, and you know, did that over the sixty four hour trip. Got into Los Angeles at five in the morning; it was still pitch black, and found a, a quiet outdoor spot at the Union Station in Los Angeles and recorded the very last song. You know, and then went back to my house and 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 sort of fell over. <laughs> and it was uh, it, it was a really really meaningful trip because he's my he's my dear brother and you know we were sharing a, a sleeper compartment i was in the upper bunk and he in the lower you know i felt like we were two guys in the army <laughs> but it was um it you know it was very profound for me to be doing something that immediate you know i which i make records really quickly you know typically three to five days of recording for almost everything i do both as an artist and a producer but even more so, jumping out onto a train platform, keeping one eye out on the porter, who's <laughs> going to make sure that we know to get ourselves back on the train before we get left behind, and blowing through one or two takes of something with people pushing past us, you know, it, it felt so immediate. And it was also fascinating to understand that, that for most people, you know, nobody gave us a look. You know, seeing a couple blokes with guitars, on a train platform, as it turns out, you know, is no big thing. People were intrigued by our recording engineer and his setup. He had a very quick portable uh, rig that he had invented, sort of like opening an umbrella. And there were four microphones on the same shaft so that we could stand face-to-face -face and sing together. Um, people thought that was fascinating. But, but, but nobody really paid Billy or I any attention whatsoever, which was perfectly great. Well, it's wonderful music. Now, your most recent album, uh, The Gospel According to Water, it well documented that you were writing that during a, an incredibly stressful time in your life, uh, dealing with, with serious illness. And, and we played a little bit of Bloom coming into our conversation here this afternoon. And, and uh, on the one hand, obviously, you know, that's about what was going on. But I feel like there's there's a bigger story there when you write about the need to carry on from here. Was that was that an acknowledgment of the need to carry on, or was it encouragement? Well, I suppose it was both. But but interestingly, that is one of the only two songs on the record that I wrote before I had been diagnosed um, with cancer. Uh, I knew I didn't feel great, but I, I, I didn't understand what was happening to me. I was in the west coast of Ireland doing a... Uh, writing residency at a small art college in, in the seaside town of Ballyvaughan. And um, that's one of the songs I wrote. And then almost immediately after coming home, I found out what was happening with me and to me, and then went deep into a writing mode because that was what I did for my sanity and my spiritual survival. But it was interesting to me to go back and listen to the couple of songs I had written before I actually understood what the landscape was for me and realize that they were, uh, they were all sharing the same language. You know, I think my body knew before my mind did, you know, what was afoot. But in, in, in truth, it, you know, when I felt really um, coward, you know, when, when we're living in fear of anything, the first thing that escapes us is our creative problem solving. And I was paralyzed, but I realized very soon that when I got up very early in the morning and I was getting up in, in pitch darkness, um, no matter how frightened I was, and I certainly was, if I could begin a song 
uh, if I could start writing anything, um, then the doors and windows sort of opened for me. I, 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 I wasn't as, as limited. You know, my imagination was not closed down. So once again, you know, the, you know there was music um, sort of um, opening a door for me and, and elevating me in a way that I didn't know how to do for myself. I love the song from the album, uh, Orson Welles. I'm a huge Welles fan, and uh, I was watching just the other night, Citizen Kane was on, and I watched it for, I don't know, the 30th or 40th time in my life. And uh, that line, uh, is that what inspired you? The line when he says to a reporter on the phone, uh, Charles Foster Kane says, you provide the prose poems, I'll supply the war. Well, when I first began writing the song, and the title came first, I was on a very quick plane ride from Los Angeles to San Francisco with my wife. We were going to go see a, a friend in a play. And I just got my notebook out. It's only a 50-minute flight or something. And uh, I pulled my notebook out because I'm trained to do it. And I just found myself, for no apparent reason, writing Orson Welles at the top of the page. I knew it was a good title for something, but I, I, I didn't know what it had to say to me. I didn't know what Orson was going to be the delivery system for. Um, so I just started writing like I always do, keeping myself away from, you know, any thought of what I'm trying to accomplish. Uh, but when I got, you know, to what I understood the chorus might be, um, that line, uh, a mutation of that line from the film just sort of offered itself up and, and retroactively made sense of my title. But it was really not a, a, a preconceived idea. It, it, it never is. It, I, I really don't sit there and think, oh, this is a great metaphor for this, and, and I'll shore it up with this line that will tie this all together. It, it just doesn't happen for me that way. But, um, I, you know, I, I, I know that the song is not, a, it's not about Orson, but I know that he allowed me um, to speak as I needed to in that moment, and I'm grateful to him. And, and, and by the way, Rich, I also just a couple of weeks ago rewatched Citizen Kane myself for the I don't know, twenty fifth, thirtieth time. Who knows what it was? And uh, I was just as enthralled as, I, as I've ever been by it. Absolutely. But so, how's your health today, Joe? I'm doing very well, thanks. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, well enough to to have have, you know, made a move across the country and left my, uh, you know, UCLA doctor. And it, it, it occurred to me when I arrived in Maine that I'm, you know. I must believe I have a future. Otherwise, I don't think I would have the nerve, you know, to walk away from from that relationship and and be doing something as ambitious as we are um, doing here in your beautiful state. Well, we're so happy to have you here, Joe, and it's great to have the opportunity to speak with you this afternoon. Thank you so much for spending a little time with us today. Rich, it's my pleasure. I really appreciate the invitation, and and it's. It's, it's great to be here. We have been made to feel very welcome. Well, that is Joe Henry with us here on Downtown, the podcast. And yeah, we're so glad to have him as a resident of our state of Maine. When we come back, the gentleman who got us together with Joe Henry, our friend Van Dyke Parks, after this word from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. from his collaboration with Billy Bragg from 2016. The album Shine a Light, doing their version of John Hartford's Gentle on My Mind. Back here on Downtown, the podcast. And up next, our most recent conversation with singer, songwriter, musician, arranger, producer, former record executive, and 
all-around interesting guy to talk with, Van Dyke Parks, who joined us just a few days ago on Downtown. Van Dyke, so good to have you back with us. How have you been dealing with this lengthy pandemic and quarantine situation? The fact is they've had me in quarantine for many years. I, as a songwriter, that's where I'm at, where I'm at. That's what happens. We work in solitude. Ultimately, of course, you know, I've arranged for many famous people. You know that. And, and, um, had a long life skirting, you know, on, on the margins of the famous people with superior talent or agents. And, and in fact, it's been wonderful. But the thing is, ultimately, what I do is just to arrange music. And uh, that's how basically how I got my kids through their college uh, experiences. And, and um, so this is like, I'm, this business about isolation is nothing new to me. And um, however, I am absolutely as humbled as anybody on the planet about the magnitude of the virus. Now, you know, <laughs> uh, because it's a mind, excuse me. Excuse me. Gladys, please tell Robert DeLay I'll have to call him back. I'm on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> with, uh, with Rich Kimball, anyway, and Carrie. So here's the thing. Um, nothing new to isolation, but the magnitude of the virus is has impacted me. I'm a 78-year-old musician, and everybody I know in music in, and in the arts, I'm talking journalism or anywhere that that – that congregations where people get together uh, have been affected so much by this mindless virus. It's almost so severe. It's like in the Bible where it says in Luke, uh, reminding people of the what God that God will not be amused by humanity's hubris, and uh, and he says, and he hath scattered the proud in the imagining of their hearts, and the rich he hath sent empty away. This has shaken the very principles of, of democracy and economy. We know this stuff. And the only way out of this rabbit hole of hopelessness for me at 78 is music. And that's what I do. That's my racket. And I'm so glad you noticed because I love Maine so much. I love, I miss, I'm in California. I miss the... I miss the, the, the fields of subsistence farming where the boulders had moved, been moved aside in neat rows in Euclidean geometries, and the windows are old enough to weep. And you see, and, and there's always the first crocus and the mm. first warm day in spring, how aromatic, I mean, the, the uh, ammoniated vapors in the farmlands. I've seen stuff like that. And I miss, I miss Maine. And uh, I spent the 64, 1964, I spent time in the percolating coffee house era of Portsmouth. Right, that's right. Isn't that something? So that's my story, Rich. I guess we're off the air now. <laughs> <laughs> now, how, how are your hands? I know, uh, I think it, it not... Not long before we talked last time, uh, you had had surgery and, and well, it didn't go as well as you hoped. Oh, I know I did. That's true. But you know something? I, I am tackling. I mean, I just I just got another I got another Chopin mazurka into my hands the other day to the amusement and, and uh, uh, adoration of my wife. Of all of all creatures. And uh, that's saying something. And I and of course. And I and I play. I still play with a checkered velocity. <laughs> now, I mean, you know, uh, I don't have that ability in the dumb green fields of my youth. I don't have that. That today's Mendelssohn's birthday, for example. One of my favorite pieces is Mendelssohn's Variations Serieuse, Serious Variations. He wrote it when he was 18, and he trashes that chickering like I trash. I once did the Steinway, and with that piece, incredible variations, 
uh, very uh, serious variations by Mendelssohn. Check it out, all you codger rockers, or you want to get <laughs> get get a, the, a groove. It's a, a magnificent that that piece. That it just reminded me today, being Mendelssohn's birthday, it reminded me of my my primary youth when I could play a piano beautifully and a flawlessly. I did one one uh, test piece. Uh, at Carnegie Tech in Pittsburgh, and the, uh, on the jury was the conductor William Steinberg, and I can't tell you how frightened I was. <laughs> and that was uh, that was either uh, uh, fight or flight. So I I, I tackled the piece, <laughs> and I just remembered that today. I can't play that piece well anymore, but I still keep every day. It's a day of music to me. To, well, today it's also a walk in Griffith Park. Fortunately. Uh, I don't want to make anybody in Maine mad at me, but it's about room temperature. But we're we're all tossing the temperature around a great deal. I see the uh, 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 from in the climate change, it's a reality. We we just had our first snowstorm, such as it, it has been yesterday, which is as you know very unusual uh, for here in Maine. It's been one of those crazy mild winters, but we're seeing more and more of that lately. Yeah. Oh, so listen, I love that. I love that. See, I love what the what that does to it gives you a sense of shelter with other people. And I think that although we've been cautioned to do to be a long distance love and everything with with one another, what I get uh, out of it is is uh, out of the winter. It's they invite a great companionability, and I look forward to that again. You know, when we can all just get together mm. and lean on one another, uh, and <laughs> I don't mean I'm looking for a good pub crawl, although I think pubs are fun places, but I mean, where people gather close range, I miss that so much. The music I do now uh, is is absolutely long distance, you see. When I do, I do some things, I've been working on a on an album coming out on BMG, it's, it's uh, about a, a a a girl who's well, she's a, a woman, she's 38, she's a harpist and a, a poet from the Yucatan in in Mexico, southern Mexico, kind of that pre-Columbian Mesoamerican kind of music, and out of the box, new kind of music for me. I'm 78. And I run into this person. She introduced herself to me and asked me if I would help her in some way. And I was uh, really uh, moved by the, uh, well, first of all, what you call, uh, when you hear some music, sometimes it's like um, of such superior irrelevance. You know, really (laughs) doesn't matter, folks. Okay? We're not talking Madonna. What I'm saying is, this business about other cultures, and let's let's look at this uh, music as a horizontal experience. There are other worlds than the American popsters' world. We have this down. We've seen what the first world can do uh, in volume. What I think is very important is to pay attention to music that is vestigial, that is dying, that languages that are being... Um, overwhelmed as uh, Micronesia is by the rise in the tide. We need to, I think, champion the, the, what I'm doing is championing what I think is important in music, and that is this great music of, it's a girl's name is Veronica Valerio. You'll forget it, but it's, and then, until it's issued, but it'll, it'll be issued, I believe, in a week or so, there at BMG over there in Berlin. But um, it's amazing. Klaus Vormann did the cover. He oh, did, wow. he had done the, done the cover for Revolver for the Beatles, and he right. still has a true aim. Talking with Van Dyke Parks uh, on downtown. And uh, thank you, by the way, tomorrow, your friend Joe Henry will join us here on the program. And I, I knew a little bit about Joe, but but since we chatted about him last week, I have just been diving into his music. And, and my goodness, what a what a wonderfully profound artist he is. Oh, I said, oh, uh, I, uh, I saw a picture of uh, 
a president of the United States, his name was Obama, but don't let that coerce your respect for this moment, that Joe Henry's work, his book, was in the hands of the president who was reading it, who, who declared that he likes Joe Henry's authorial, authorial ability. <laughs> so Joe is the real deal. Also, his music is so close to the vest, and uh, uh, that is... Uh, uh, no, there no veil of deceit there. He just really, he expresses, I think, the way he's telling me how I feel, I think, so easily, so often in his, in his, in his songs. Yep. He's a big, so he's moving to Maine. Yeah. That turncoat, that turncoat decided that Horace <laughs> Greeley didn't know what he was talking about. It's a Horace Greeley in reverse this time around. Yeah. Well, it's like Phil Oaks wrote a song called I Want a One-Way Ticket Home. Believe me, you get that impression occasionally in Los Angeles. <laughs> I, I want to ask you about something that I don't believe we've ever talked about before in your, your early years, the formative years of Van Dyke Parks. Can you explain how you ended up as the recurring character of Tommy Manicotti on The Honeymooners? Well, I don't think I recurred. I, I think I was on twice on Honeymooners. Uh, that's Jackie Gleason. See, I went to a boarding school. There was a death in the family. They wanted me to avoid it. I was sent off to a boarding school uh, to save me some grief and give me a life of illumination in music. And it was called the Columbus Boy Choir School. It's a boarding school outside of Princeton, New Jersey on a vast estate with arrowheads on it. And, oh, amazing amazing uh, sassafras tea. We would get our own sassafras. We'd go out and gig and we'd get our own frog legs and sell them to the headmaster's wife. And then we'd go into Princeton with that money. We'd get 50 cents for a pair of frog legs and get into a movie theater. It was a great life and New York wasn't that far away. And so to pay for this boarding school, uh, my parents let them agent me out to a few shows on... on uh, on television. I did 82 television shows in my youth. And I go through, uh, I went through Pennsylvania Station uh, on my way from Princeton Junction. People would recognize me in the, in the, uh, in the Grand Concourse. It was an amazing experience and I was humbled by it, to tell you the truth. And I was also grateful that we could afford to send me to that boarding school because it it turned me into music that's where I, that was my on ramp was a boy choir school and um yep that was a great time i i peaked in the 50s i guess that you brought it's your fault rich you brought this up <laughs> well, you did pretty well in the 60s too uh, can you tell me about the time if the story I've heard is true, that you went to talk with Frank Sinatra to try and convince him to record your brother no, Carson's I didn't, I didn't, song. I didn't try to. I convinced him. This is a fact. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and I was, uh, my brother had written a song called uh, Something Stupid. My brother Carson, my oldest brother, was seven years apart. And, uh, but not much more, really. And, um, the thing is, uh, the head. I was at uh, A&R at Warner Brothers, and uh, the head of the company knew that Sinatra was retiring. He had. We we went to um, we went to Vegas to see him. We went to Vegas to see Sinatra. This is a big deal for me. I was. What was? The, what year was that? Uh, was that? I was probably twenty three years old. I think twenty four. And I walked to, into Vegas, and that's when Sinatra had a tantrum on the stage and quit and everything. And of course, which would, that was dismal news for the record company that he owned. So I had a gift for Gab and went over it. I've lost it. But I had a gift for Gab, and, <laughs> and I, I went into the, I was asked to go by the CEO, Mo Austin. Mo Austin asked me to go over to see Sinatra and convince him because I could, you know. and. Uh, we had that song, and and I had something in mind for him, and uh, we went into the room, and I want to tell you, he was so bronze and so beautiful, so perfectly quaffed. I mean, everything was regular, even though it was a very, he was the guy that's all locker room, but <laughs> but definitely handsome, and you know, he had stature, 
And he'd come a long way as a poor Italian kid from New Jersey. And there he was owning this building called the Sinatra Building on the Warner Brothers lot. And, and um, I just remember the only words I remember saying was, well, you can't quit, Mr. Sinatra. You've, you've spanned presidencies. You see, he, he was the Beatles had, had him cowed. He was just mm. cowering. This enormous rock sensibility had him completely mystified. And, and he wanted to hang it up. So... And, and I remember, and the only other line I remember in the thing, and this is a testament to my courage, he said, thanks, kid, I learned a lot. Wow. So that's what I got from Sinatra. And then my brother became very wealthy <laughs> from, the, from, the, from the song that Sinatra sang with his daughter who, and something stupid, a terrible title. The thing is, Carson didn't write something stupid. He wrote something smart. I wrote the stupid stuff. But... Uh, <laughs> Which, but but um, I'm very gratified by the arranging I've brought and the fact and the and the people that I've worked with and I've learned something that Truman uh, said, which I think is wonderful and isn't it astounding how much you can accomplish if you don't care who gets the credit. Oh, isn't that now, the truth? Yep, this is it. That Truman said that. Isn't that great? So the thing is, here I, I come off on a, on a radio show with you, Rich, and I really admire your work and who you are and what you do, set with a, such a sense of community and, as, and fostering a sense of place among these people down east and beyond. You know, <laughs> this is what you do. So this is an art. This is a journalistic art to me, what you do. And I, so I'm very, very uh, uh, honored to be up there. Uh, but what it what it reduces me to is like like a general uh, uh, rehearsing old victories and imagine importance <laughs> that really were. And you know I don't want to do that. I just want to tell you I'm living. I'm work, working now and I'm very much engaged in the present tense. Music every day. Just finished that uh, an album called Only in America, which is the music of the Yucatan, Mexico. Let me ask you about this, Van Dyke. I read something recently that, that last year was the, the best year for vinyl recordings in, in some three decades now. How, how good is that to see vinyl making a comeback? And not just in terms of sound quality, but I, I think of you know, my own experiences as, as a youngster uh, buying records and not just listening to the albums, but reading the liner notes, admiring the artwork and the whole package that came with vinyl records. Well, you mean what? What do I think about the reemergence of vinyl? Indeed, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a step toward fidelity. I want to tell you, it's hi-fi. That's what. That's why they called it hi-fi. It is the highest resolution you can get. The only estoppel on the fidelity available from from the microphone, by the way, to the speaker, is in the stylus itself. This is this is a great medium. They could have chosen carborundum. If they had, they would have dulled the diamond needles. They decided to favor uh, the uh, the needle and sell the records. They made that decision in the record business years ago. I've studied all that stuff. It's very interesting, fascinating. This business of the the recording industry that existed for a century. It started out great. People wanted to pay for music. They wanted to, to they wanted to play it. They wanted to be part of it. It became it became an important asset to the selling of pianos for the middle class to mm -hmm. look like high class folks. And uh, well, they sold pianos. We have one in my living room, the Steinway in my living room. It was a, called a maternity gift. It came into the living room the day my dad came into the living room. I was born. It was a tribute to a, to the wife who had had a, a child. It's called a maternity gift. We used to do that. The piano company sold uh, sold uh, pianos as maternity gifts. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? I love that story. Yeah. So then, and at that time, well, I'm talking circa World War One. Ten cents for sheet music, five cents to the publisher, five cents to the writer. Whoa. <laughs> 
check it out, baby. Pennies from heaven. But they were pennies from heaven. And and uh, so it's amazing to me. I don't know what these noises are, but I think they're very interesting. Add a little high tech <laughs> sound sound effects. The, give, I think they're giving. I think all these commands. You know, like when I got a phone call about an hour ago. <laughs> you know, this is good. It makes us people are going to think we're really buzzing at the office. <laughs> That's good. You're, clearly, things are happening there. Um, this summer, I believe in June, uh, marks the 80th anniversary of the birth of a, a good friend of yours and, and one of my favorite artists, Harry Nilsson, uh, would have turned 80 years old. What was it about Harry that made him, from your perspective, such a unique talent? Well, it was absolutely, it was absolutely, uh, it's just so brilliant. It, it was a genius, truly a genius. And, uh, one of the very few that I've met, you know, and he was a genius and that's, and, uh, a genius at doing things with his own wits, uh, his, his, uh, encyclopedic recall. If he could, Harry could tell you what day you were born on. If you give him the date, he could do it within 10 seconds. And there were about seven mathematical steps to that. Okay, <laughs> he was a smart boy who had been working in a bank, and he knew what it was like to be dirt poor. Came to California with his mother, like Okies, but from uh, from Brooklyn, uh, where they had the garbage cans that said uh, "Feed a Rat." <laughs> keep your uh, no, don't uh, don't feed a rat. Keep your garbage closed and it's a terrible he had terrible recollections of his youth came to california uh and when they got across the state line they parked next to a to a uh, to get into the shade they parked next to a house with a with an orange tree and he st and he stole some fruit to to keep so that they would have something to eat and uh, they got caught he had that on his record and came into to, to Los Angeles, finally got here, and he worked very hard. What can I say? You know, if you surround yourself with great achievers, it really is commanding and demanding. And he really, he gave me a, uh, he gave me a, <laughs> a lot to do in, in short order, and I en ended up arranging some for him. And um, I think I co-wrote a few things with him. But he was just generally, he was he was truly, as he said in Popeye, where we, I am what I am. I mean, I thought Popeye was, he had that belligerent man, working class, I mean, really, and proud of it. And at the same time, he would book himself into a hotel in Europe uh, with a lobby that you had to dress up to walk through. And uh, he knew how to play that too. He played had very elegant, uh, but he had and he had, but his it was his understanding of music which made him so imp anything. The point is he had a grasp for what was great in music. That is the the common the the, the, the ad speak the common lingo uh, the. Um, the cliche experiences of of um, of music. So, like he knew how to he knew how to tell to compose something you're sure you've heard but you haven't. Hmm. And, and this really and so I think he's a wonderfully uh, and also darn it uh, um, I think I felt very he was a very lonely man. And he said that so often that he was very lonely. And he also, I think, never satisfied himself at all in spite of the bravado. So you get all that. You get a great deal. Nelson, one of the great voices of, I dare say, the 21st century. Really. I mean, timeless from the bubbles in the bottle and the way he studies the evolution of a raindrop in Salmon Falls, for example, an orchestral mm -hmm. piece where he just converses his way through. And he converses through like Bob Dylan does, like the most effortless non-melody of such great musical value. 
He knew how to do that. Something else, isn't it? It sure really is. Really good. Van Thacker, you know, you, uh, I want to I want to ask you as an observer of the world, and you were a keen observer of the world. Are you are you optimistic about our future at this point? Well, you know, since 1969, I've been uh, terribly obsessed, uh, just sleepless about ecology. That was when the Santa Barbara uh, oil spill uh, happened. Now, it was about the same time there was Charles Manson and everyone was fascinated with that. And that was the death knell of the uh, love generations uh, counter revolution. Uh, that Charlie Manson thing. But what was more significant to me, it's 1969 in my life, a benchmark in my life, was that it signaled that ecology was job one in eco-politics was my concern. So I would work, for example, just collating papers while I was doing things, working for people like Randy Newman and Ry Cooters. I was downtown working in under fluorescent lights, which I hated, and uh, with uh, to just send out mailers for water quality. When I heard that water that some folks couldn't afford bottled water, but the water of Los Angeles wasn't potable, I found that unacceptable. So I turned myself into a secretary. I met people. I met people who were cleaning up the bay, and they did. Whales are in our bay now, in our Santa Monica Bay. So there have been there has been progress, but part the what what pardon me, sir, but the precious time lost mm-hmm. in the oblivion of the recent president. Yes, the four yes. years lost, and the 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 damage. Now, if you look in the New York Times today, and I, I pardon me, I did on my way to the puzzle. <laughs> and I saw on page 17, a back page, I said something about biodiversity and how important biodiversity is to our, not only our survival, but our profit. So go on, guys, the people that want to, who, who live by the, the progress of profit only, take heed. Environment is absolutely essential to our profit. So... You ask me if I'm optimistic. Yes, I am. I am. And I think that that means that it's not, it should not be unfashionable to be urgent about something, folks. We don't have to look like we share the same Norman Rockwell contentment we did, although Norman had his dissatisfaction with racial racism. Norman represented the American contentment that we got after the Eisenhower era, the sleepwalk of oblivion. (laughs) What we have here is a call to urgency in some areas. And that doesn't mean you're unhip, chicken little. It doesn't mean you're unhip. It's time to start, start squawking about some things. I believe that reason will out. I'm a very religious man but I'm also a rational man. I'm sorry to say with me, I believe it's with once with gusto and in that I may have failed a lot. I expected more of myself than I've given. And now my life is dedicated to trying to make life more beautiful with music. Now, that's the truth. And the, and, uh, be, but it is a pursuit of, the, of, of uh, equanimity among the races. I wish my late brother who was a Methodist minister he said he wished that he could live. He died last year. He wished that he could live to see the world go beige just to get rid of all this trouble. It's so distracting. So let's keep our eyes on the sparrow and let's keep hope alive. And I put that into my every work and in my every note. And I'm loving the, the, the struggle of all this and, the, and, and that we must be reminded we come from people who lived through a depression people who fought for a basket full of greens. This happened in the 30s. Believe me, my uncles shot pool to the shame of their mother. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? We worked so hard to get here. Let's stay hungry. And remember this, after that pandemic, the pandemonium is over. We have each other to embrace. And when we get over this indignity, this global indignity, it didn't come from China. It may have come from God. I don't know. I'm not that smart. But I do good arrangements, having fun with music, and I know when this battle is over, 
we all will wear a crown. Well said, my friend Van Dyke Parks. It is always a wonderful pleasure for us to get the chance to talk with you. Thank you so much for allotting a little time for us today. Man, hey, Rich, my mother told me when I was young, she said, Van Dyke, you talk too much and you say too little. I just think it's nice to know my mother was right about something. <laughs> Thank you so much, sir. My pleasure. Listen, let's do this again. We're going to raise the dust. Van Dyke Parks with us on Downtown. And always an interesting conversation. Van Dyke's mind. I mean, he told us, mentioned a few times, well, I'm, I'm 78 years old. Yeah, he is still sharp as ever. And you never know what direction he's going to go. It is always an uh, interesting journey when you're, when you're talking with him. Uh, so many interests, so many passions, and it, and it all can come out in the course of that conversation. And God, Joe Henry was great to talk with. That's that's a guy that uh, I think we'll they'll definitely get back on again. And would hope that once we get back to some semblance of of normal here, maybe Joe will do a show or two right here in the state of Maine because I, I would love to see him in concert. Our thanks to Joe Henry and Van Dyke Parks, and thanks to you for joining us this week on Downtown the Podcast. For Kerry Haskell, I'm Rich Kimball. We'll see you next time here on Downtown.